Welcome to this episode of the New Lines podcast. I'm your host, Rasha Ilas, and with us today is James Barnett, a Fulbright researcher and research fellow for the Center of Democracy and Development in Abuja, Nigeria. James, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me here, Rasha. You wrote a riveting essay for New Lines magazine about the time you spent finding and interviewing bandits who operate in some of Nigeria's most remote areas. Why don't you start by telling us about the banditry crisis facing Nigeria today and how the violence affects ordinary people? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Russia. Um, I mean, the, the crisis is very kind of complex and in some ways very difficult to characterize. Uh, in various uh, talks and publications or whatnot, I've kind of uh, defined it as, you know, a crisis of warlordism, a criminal insurgency, uh, a criminal insurgency with ethno-nationalist characteristics, um, if I want to be a bit tongue-in-cheek. Um, but kind of to, to put it differently, essentially, the, the so in northern Nigeria, in the northeast, you have this crisis with Boko Haram, these jihadists. That's kind of well-established, been going on for 12 years now. A real, you know, immense humanitarian tragedy and such. Um, but that kind of clearly fits within the paradigms that I think Westerners are kind of familiar with looking at conflict, right? They're jihadists. And unfortunately, you know, Western powers have spent several decades now kind of fighting jihadists. They understand what they look like, all that stuff, um, how they operate. In the Northwest, what you essentially have is kind of an intercommunal crisis. Um, the, the phrase farmer herder crisis is a bit kind of a, of a tired phrase and there's more to it than that. But at, at, you know, to, to a degree, uh, that is kind of how this, how a lot of this violence, uh, started which is that you had tensions between, you know, over land use between farming and herding communities that kind of took on an ethnic dimension. And at the same time, you have uh, criminal violence that's always, you know, been a part of northwestern Nigeria, like as in most other societies. Um, this being a rural society where you have a lot of pastoralism, very often the criminality takes the form of cattle rustling. Um, and essentially over the past kind of 15 years, uh, you've gradually had a kind of brewing intercommunal crisis that kind of fuels greater criminality and then kind of vice versa. And so you have this kind of spiraling effect where kind of intercommunal tension feeds into criminality, which feeds back into intercommunal tension. And so, you know, fast forward to 2021, Northwestern Nigeria is essentially kind of ungoverned or ungovernable, I should say, from the perspective of the Nigerian government. In much of the countryside, there's kind of very little state presence because what you have is you have the region kind of broken down into these little fiefdoms that are run by these gangs. Um, colloquially, they're known as bandits, but as I refer to them several times in the essay, uh, in many ways, they kind of operate a bit more like warlords with kind of a territorial dimension where they'll actually kind of exercise sovereignty um, over, over villages and such. And so the conflict now is in a very kind of confusing place where you have these gangs that are primarily out to make money um, and to kind of increase their power. And they do this through a number of activities, um, cattle rustling, uh, you know, mass kidnappings for ransom is kind of the real shocking development of the past, uh, the past year, um, uh, kind of really started in December, 2020, um, you know, where you have these mass kidnappings of, of school children, especially you also have, you know, smaller time kidnapping for ransom, um, you have just general kind of raiding, looting. In many ways, you have terrorism. 
um, which is, you know, these gangs will go into communities and torch a village and take all their stuff. Um, so you have these, you know, over a hundred gangs at this point in the Northwest who are kind of engaged in these activities and they're insurgents in a sense, because they claim that they are, you know, most of them claim that they're fighting to kind of in protest of the government's abuses of one particular community, the, the Fulani pastoralist community. Um, and the whole ethnic dimension is, is requires some nuance. So we can talk about that later if, if you'd like. Um, but you know, you have these, these bandits who kind of position themselves more as militias, as insurgents. Uh, but at the same time, they're fighting each other quite often in kind of the manner of, you know, gang warfare. Um, they're mostly attacking innocent civilians. And so this, this is where it gets very difficult to kind of discern, like, what are the objectives of the bandits, which is something that I kind of teased out in the essay. But in terms of kind of the, the effect on the, on the ordinary, um, community members, I mean, it's, it's really immense. Um, for, you know, I'd say for several years now. Um, sorry, did you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, this is, I, I want to interject here. I mean, these are basically hardened men who, as you say, committed sometimes unspeakable violence against villagers and defenseless people, uh, and certainly against women and children. Uh, they're notorious for sexual violence. Um, tell me, what was it like to sit down with them? And and how did it come about anyway in the first place to go out and find them? What did it take? Um, yeah, no, great question. Um, they they don't have a toll free number, uh, unfortunately, so you can't just you know call them up and arrange a meeting. Um, yeah. It was you know I'd been researching the banditry conflict for for several months. It actually it wasn't the main kind of uh, purpose of my Fulbright research, you know, um, I think I can say that now uh, that the Fulbright's complete. Um, I made very good use of my time there. And I did, you know, I, I originally wanted to do some historical research, which I made progress on. So if anyone from the Fulbright committee is listening, you know, don't worry about that. But <laughs> I was, um, I was kind of drawn to this, you know, this issue of, of banditry, because it in part, because it seemed very confusing. And even within Nigerian media, there didn't seem to be that much, you know, there are some notable exceptions, um, you know, colleagues and, and friends who have really done fantastic work uh, to whom I'm very indebted. Um, but, you know, there, there's kind of a lot of confusion, even within the Nigerian mainstream about who these bandits are, what are they trying to achieve? There's a lot of kind of conspiracy theories going around, pretty sensationalist narratives. So I've been studying banditry. I'd kind of been drawn into it for several months and I hadn't been to Zamfara yet. I'd been to a number of states around Zamfara. Um, Zamfara is very difficult for researchers or journalists to travel to, in part uh, because there's no airport there. So Nigeria as a whole is kind of, I mean, the country is just really struggling with insecurity that's more geographically dispersed than it's probably ever been. And so one of the ways that people, you know, the only way in many instances, especially for foreigners, that people can get around is they have to go to like the air, the, the little airports in the state capital, because the roads are just too insecure, whether it's criminality, you know, jihadists, um, whatever. So I'd, I'd been avoiding Zampara for a while, but I really need to get there because that's the epicenter of the banditry crisis. And no where is that located in. in the country? Which region of the country? Sorry. Yes. Yeah, so this is, this is all pretty much in the Northwest. Um, the, the banditry conflict kind of, it, it spreads into the north central regions as well. Um, and these phrases, they mean, they mean slightly different things to Nigerians than they might to someone just looking at a map because you actually have different 
geopolitical zones, one called Northwest, one North Central, Northeast, et cetera. Um, but essentially, Zampara State is near the border with Niger Republic. Um, okay. And so it's only accessible by road from neighboring Katsina or Sokoto State, which, uh, or Kaduna State, um, you know, all of which I, I was also doing field work in. Um, so, you know, in terms of how I met the bandit, it's, you know, I, I came to Zampara. Um, I was mostly, you know, I, I was doing um, some research, um, both kind of for my own, you know, research purposes and also doing some work with, with CDD, the Center for Democracy and Development. Um, and, you know, I was, I was mostly in the capital, Gusau, uh, and, you know, having interviews with, with various kind of key informants and stakeholders and stuff there, talking to different sources. And one of the guys we interviewed, you know, just to preserve his anonymity, um, essentially he was able to connect us with, uh, with these bandits. He said, you know, I, I know these guys, if you want to talk to them, this gang in particular won't kidnap you. Um, cause that's obviously the, the big concern. Um, the bandits, they kidnap people for ransom. Yeah. Um, yeah. they, and they, you know, they, they kidnap foreigners, right? It's one reason why foreigners don't generally go up there. Um, and I'd researched these, you know, these gangs and these warlords a bit. And so one thing that I kind of, I guess that made me feel a bit more confident about going out to meet these guys, particularly, uh, Al-Haji Shehushingi, Al-Haji Auta, and Al-Haji Nashima out in, in Birnin Magaji in that part of Zampara State was, yeah, I mean, it was really two things. One is that these bandits are a bit older. They're kind of of an older generation of the, of the bandits. They took up arms, they said in 2011. And they really make an effort to present themselves as, you know, non-criminals. I mean, I kind of start the essay that way. They, they see themselves essentially as like, they say, you know, we're a Fulani militia. We're defending the interests of the herders. We want peace. You know, we're not, we're not criminals by nature. They're um, honorable bandits, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And actually, you know, the late British historian Eric Hobsbawm had this concept of, of social banditry, you know, this idea that bandits kind of represent you know, the interests of the neglected rural communities against the aristocracy or encroaching bourgeoisie or whatever. And I mean, you know, I can safely assume that Alhaji Shingi has not read Hobbsbaum, but he kind of, he at least tries to present himself um, in that, you know, in that notion of like he, a community he, defender. He identifies with Robin Hood, nonetheless. Yeah, kind of, kind of like that. <laughs> so, so to speak. yeah, precisely. Um, so I thought that there was, you know, I thought that kind of because of that, that these were people who really kind of made a point of trying to be men of their word, so to speak. And so if they granted an interview, essentially, my thinking was they probably really meant it. Whereas a lot of the younger bandits, you know, one of the problems is you have these gangs fracturing and younger lieutenants will fight their, you know, their, their mentors, their superior, you know, the bandit gang leaders and very often kind of the reputation is that the younger bandits are often very hot headed. They're just trying to make money really quickly. You know, a number of these younger bandits have been, you know, that's kind of the only life they know, right? They've been bandits since teenagers. And so they weren't, you know, whereas like Alhaji Shingi and these other guys were herders, they were kind of ordinary herders before they took up arms. Some of these, these younger bandit leaders have kind of, this is the life they've known for several years. And so you know, I kind of made a mental tally in my head of, okay, these are bandits who I probably wouldn't trust to hold their word if they say that they grant an interview, whereas these bandits are 
maybe a bit more reliable. Okay, so it sounds like this group is older and more sophisticated and uh, more self-conscious maybe of their image. And so they want to give their word that they won't kidnap you if they agree to interview you. Um, yeah, why, how did, why did you trust them? I mean, I think, you know, part of it was that I, I, you know, trusted, it was a question of the intermediaries, I guess. And when they kind of explained what the process was for going out to meet them. And, you know, I really, I mean, I should give a big shout out here. I gave it in the, the essay, but, you know, Dr. Murtala Rafai, the, the academic who I was traveling with in, in Zampara, he's more familiar with these situations than I certainly was. And he was, I mean, really uh, kind of invaluable uh in 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 kind of arranging all of this um and you know we've we're we're working on some research together so i guess i'll I'll tease that now but he's a he's a kind of a phenomenal uh uh intellectual of these issues of banditry kind of tracing their roots and stuff and so uh you know him being at ease made me feel a bit more at ease and sound for 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 starters but um you know that said he's also a a real risk taker and you know this was this was taking a risk Uh, i won't deny that but i kind of you know, I calculated that it was in their interests. It was more. It was more in their interests to have a researcher, or a journalist, and particularly a foreign one, kind of come in, hear out their grievances, um, as a way, in part, of kind of signaling to the governor essentially that they're looking for another amnesty, uh, which is something that I, I address towards the end of the essay. But one of the kind of factors that I think really influenced is how the bandits operate, or at least certain certain of these gangs, is, you know, they're trying to hold out kind of hope that that there will be another round of these governor-initiated amnesties that kind of often they include a degree of, you know, subsidizing the bandits um, uh, in terms of, you know, there's like a stipend or something. And so in some ways, they're, you know, the bandits are often trying to position themselves in a way so that if there is a kind of an amnesty agreement, they'll be able to take advantage of that. Um, and as they were kind of signaling to me throughout the day, you know, saying all this nice stuff about Governor Matawale, who's the current governor, whereas, you know, they were disparaging his his predecessor, this Abdul Ziziari. Um, and so they were, you know, they were kind of signaling throughout the day, right? Like, okay, you know, whatever we tell this guy, we hope it kind of gets out there so that, you know, the people, the powers that be in Zamfara right now kind of know who we are. They know we're powerful. They know they need to work with us and they know that we're ready for some sort of agreement like that. Um, so, you know, there was a bit of that. Yeah. You're basically the foreigner you're the white Westerner, uh, you know, sort of, and they want to use you as their emissary to deliver a message to the, you know, whatever, to the world, to, um, the local governments and and so on. Yes. Carry on. yeah, exactly. And and I think, you know, I mean, I can't deny that the kind of the fact that I'm a foreigner also made me something of a, you know, a, a prized object or I guess a commodity, you know, I mean, that was really the risk, right? Like, if they kidnap me, they could ask for a lot of money for me. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. On the other hand, there's a certain, I mean, Alhaji Shingi clearly felt, and I think the others, they felt very kind of, you know, impressed or honored that, you know, they kind of saw it as I had come, and and I think this was what our intermediary said, maybe to help kind of grease the wheels, was like, oh, you know, he's come all the way from America. He really wants to meet you guys in particular. Um, 
And, right. And, and you were something of a curiosity to them as well. I mean, at one point they asked you to unbutton your shirt and show them mm-hmm. your tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> and they're thrilled. They're thrilled to learn that you also spent some time growing up on a farm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they were curious. Ahaji Shingi in particular um, and some of his boys were just really curious to learn about the outside world. Um, you know, they've been in the bush for a long time. Um, you know, Shingi before that, he was not, um, you know, a particularly wealthy or, or well-traveled man. I mean, he was, you know, from what I can tell, right. I mean, he, he is an Ahaji. He's, he, he was a pretty successful, um, you know, herder, but, uh, he was not someone who, you know, like ever traveled to the West, for example. And so he was very curious to learn about, you know, I mean, to him, all the Bature are kind of, you know, all the white people he's wondering, like, are they all kind of one type of people? Or are they, you know, are there different nations, different tribes? Um, yeah, so, those were some amazing exchanges, actually, between you, which you, which you, um, you touch upon in your essay. Tell us a little bit more about the preconceived notions that they had about white people. Yeah, I mean, it's it it really was kind of one of the more, I guess, uh, interesting or you know, somewhat surreal moments of the day. Um, you know, they weren't. I, it's it's hard to really know, I guess, what their preconceived notions were. Um, but, you know, judging by their curiosity, right, they were very, um, like, they were very pleasantly surprised to hear, for example, that I, like, knew a bit about cows. And, you know, they were asking me, you know, Shingi was asking me, okay, do your parents, do they live in the city? You know, because I said, oh, well, I spent time on a family farm. So he's like, well, your parents are farmers. And then, you know, uh, I was like, well, no, they're not farmers. They live in the city. He's like, okay, but they have cows. And I was like, okay, well, how do how do I explain the fact of like, you know, uh, kind of like land tenure in the US and, you know, a farm purchased by my grandpa that we'd spend summers on and stuff like that. And um, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, they were very kind of interested to learn, I guess, a bit about that, just about kind of the, you know, the division of labor or, or the political economy, if you will, of, of kind of Western countries. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, Shingi was, you know, very interested to hear like, you know, do do white people get along with each other? Do foreigners, you know, do, do they, is there conflict between like different nations and stuff like there is in Nigeria? Um, or is it relatively peaceful? Um, and you know, that's where I kind of, uh, got my dig in at the Belgians as, as I like to, and, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know, joked about, yeah, no, we, you know, <laughs> we've not, spent a nothing, lot of our history fighting each other. We not, nothing relatively peaceful over here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, so who knows, maybe I was I was building bridges in that sense. Um, but, you know, from from there, he kind of he launched into this diatribe against the Nigerian government, which is really what I was there for. Right. I was there to hear their grievances repeated many times um, about how the government had wronged them and, you know, about how they're not criminals. Uh, one of the things they kept stressing was that, you know, the security forces you know, like the military kills more people than we do. The police kidnap more people than we do. They just do it, you know, under the guise of extortion. The the Ansakai, who are these these local vigilantes that, you know, ostensibly they're there to fight against the bandits. Um, but one of the big problems in the Northwest is that they kind of, they'll target any Fulani man they see. Um, and so they're kind of, they're the foil to the bandits in a way, right? They're the other side of this intercommunal dimension. Um, and, you know, so they were saying all this stuff about, oh, you know, in this village, the Ansakai, they robbed the people. In this village, the Ansakai killed a Fulani man for no reason. Um, and so that was kind of the, you know, they were there yeah. to get those, have those grievances heard. 
Um, right. And this is where we can touch upon the sort of inter-ethnic conflict mm -hmm. and how that relates to banditry, if you want to expand upon that. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, do we have five hours? Um, no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's it, as, as with most issues of ethnicity in Nigeria, you know, it's rarely kind of so simple. Um, but of course, you know, when you only have 4,000 words or whatever, you have to condense it. But that's, you know, that's one of the kind of key things that I think distinguishes what's happening in Northwestern Nigeria from say, you know, gang conflicts in Central America or the cartel wars in Mexico is that, you know, they're really very often the violence falls along ethnic lines, but not always. So essentially like, you know, to, to go back in history a bit, you know, traditionally speaking, uh, you know, the Fulani people, you know, way back in history, there are nomadic people in the modern era, like most Fulani in Nigeria are not actually herders these days, but a lot of them are. And so the Fulani become kind of associated with herdsmen uh, in the public imagination. And even among many Fulani, they'll see kind of all herdsmen as their co-ethnics, as their brothers, even though there are some other ethnicities, you know, Kanuri, who are from the Northeast, um, Tuaregs from kind of Mali, Niger, the, the Sahel region, they've come down to the Northwest and also become herders. And then the, the majority population in the Northwest and the North as a whole, the Hausa, they are generally, you know, they, they're not a kind of traditionally as much of a nomadic people, but many of them have also taken up cattle rearing. So that's kind of the, the nuance. I guess I'm prefacing with the nuance, but you know, how the conflict has been come to be seen by kind of all sides is that Hausa are farmers and Fulani are herders. And so the bandits are not exclusively Fulani. Um, there's no way to gauge, you know, what the kind of percentage is because we don't even know how many bandits there are, right? It's just so many of the basic kind of facts about this conflict are in fact, you know, really difficult to, to discern. Um, it's, there's just, uh, the, the narratives are too confusing. The information is incomplete. So that's kind of, we're starting with, with very limited information, but, you know, pretty much everyone, including the bandits will say, yeah, we're like mostly Fulani. But, you know, there are some other ethnic groups among us. Um, essentially, I was talking earlier about how kind of the conflict in the Northwest, um, it, it had these kind of reinforcing or self-reinforcing elements of on the one hand, you had farmer-herder conflict. On the other hand, you had banditry. And so, you know, essentially, as tensions between farmers and herders grew uh, over the past 15, 20 years, you had more, you know, bandits who some of them were Fulani to begin with, right? The cattle rustlers in particular are often uh, historically have been Fulani. They found that it was easier to kind of recruit or in some instances just conscript young herders into their ranks because they were essentially saying, look, like, look how you're being targeted by these communities that you used to have, you know, peaceful coexistence with, you know, these, you're, you're not safe out there or you're going to join us or, you know, some house of vigilantes killed your brother or something. You want revenge, you join us. Or sometimes it was just your cattle were stolen by security forces. You know, you want to get them back, join us and we'll steal cattle together. And and um, you met some of those people who were basically simple herders and they ended up joining the bandits. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, it's, again, it's kind of impossible to determine the proportions, if you will, of how many of the bandits were, you know, herders who kind of joined out of a sense of frustration or destitution or were forced into joining these bandit gangs 
versus how many of them, you know, kind of had criminal intent and were looking to, you know, uh, conduct criminal activity for self-enrichment the whole time. Um, or sometimes it can be the same person with both. Exactly. It can be the same ter- person, you know, motivations can shift over time. So kind of, you know, parallel to this, uh, you know, the bandits recruitment of more herders, or sometimes again, it was forced conscription. Um, you also had a, a number of Fulani taking up arms out of kind of a perceived need for self-defense. Um, and sometimes it wasn't even self-defense of those particular Fulani. It would be more like, you know, there's a very, there's often a very strong sense of ethnic solidarity, um, among herders in, in, in Northern Nigeria, really across West Africa. And so, I mean, you know, I had many herders say this, like, you know, one of the reasons the conflict escalated is because if a Yan Sakai, if these house of vigilantes killed a herder in a neighboring district, we would, you know, me as someone from the next district, Fulani would feel the need, you know, not all Fulani, but some Fulani, you know, would feel the need to respond. And so they'd go into that village and they'd kill five people for every one Fulani man that was killed. So it was kind of a classic example of tit for tat violence. Um, and so you had some of these, you know, some of these uh, uh, herders were taking up arms more out of self-defense. But then as they kind of, as they were pushed out of the settlements that, you know, the Ruga that would traditionally, um, you know, they'd be erected by herders outside of the villages during, you know, certain seasons where you have migration. Um, you know, when, when villagers started pushing out all the herders because they saw all the herders as bandits or, you know, uh, enemies of some sort or another, some of these herders, you know, that were taking guns, uh, kind of out of, um, or acquiring weapons for self-defense, they were pushed into the forest with bandits. And when you live in a forest with criminals, like the only way you survive is by having guns, right? If you don't have guns, then you're either killed or brought into the bandit gangs, or, you know, you need to defend your cattle from the bandits. And so you start fighting with the gangs. And then Mm -hmm. once you, you know, once you have guns and you're living in the forest because, you know, you're not welcome in some of the communities you used to be welcome in, then I think it's very easy to kind of make that transition from, I was aggrieved, you know, like, or, you know, I'm taking up weapons for self-defense to, well, maybe I can use these weapons to, you know, get more cattle or to raid these villages that don't welcome me anyways, because, you know, I'm aggrieved. And so I'm not the one who struck the first blow, right? I'm the victim here. Um, Right. And And you actually, uh, you met, you met some of, or at least you're, you're aware of who their direct victims have been, some of the, Mm -hmm. or the villages where they raided. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've interviewed, you know, frankly, more victims and more IDPs than I can really stomach. I mean, yeah, the stories yeah, are heart wrenching. To what extent are they aware of the damage? I mean, I understand that they each have their own story and sometimes it's a legitimate story of uh, victimhood. You know, if they were whatever, they lost everything, pushed into the forest, found themselves among the bandits. Um, but I would imagine, or I would suspect that's a minority, um, story and that for the most part, a lot of the men that you met there, the bandits have a lot of blood on their hands. That's, that would be my guess. Um, elaborate a little bit on that and on, uh, the extent to which they are aware of this themselves and how they reconcile it. Yeah, I'm that's or a, even or even if they mm-hmm. reconcile it. <laughs> yeah. No, that's I mean that's a great question. I 
Right. This is one of the challenges often, you know, I find this with, with, you know, Nigerians, whether it's just random people on social media or even friends or colleagues who, when you, you know, this issue is so polarizing that even just by going to meet these guys or hear the grievances of Fulani herders, it's immediately seen as, oh, you're sympathizing with them. Why don't you care about other people's pain? And, you know, like, I mean, I try to state every time I give a talk on this, like, like what the bandits are doing are just like war crimes of staggering magnitude, right? Understanding the root causes of violence is not justifying it at all. And I think in the case of these warlords, yes, like they, they have to be aware. They're aware of what they're doing. Um, I think there's potentially, you know, a difference with the foot soldiers, which is just, I mean, some of these guys, they're teenagers, they're drugged out, you know, they take a lot of tramadol, they take these drugs that make them messed up. And they're kind of just like, they've been initiated into this world of violence that, you know, in many instances, I think is just kind of, that's all they know. Um, one of the reasons perhaps that you've had pretty high rates of recidivism among, you know, the younger bandits who accept amnesties and, you know, agree to lay down arms. Very often they go back into the bush because they don't know another life and because the government isn't giving them the support they need to readjust to non-militant life. So I think, you know, you, it's, it's probably useful to, you know, separate or d distinguish between the foot soldiers and, and, you know, the kingpins. But the big guys, I mean, yeah, they, the stuff they're doing, I mean, they're very, they're very good at it, right? They're very smart in many instances. You don't get to be that powerful without having an incredibly, you know, shrewd, but utterly cynical worldview. Um, and, you know, these big, powerful guys, they're fighting for wealth. They're fighting for influence. They're trying to compete with each other. Um, and they're organized and, and they're, sophisticated. Exactly. I mean, just the weapons they have, all that stuff. So, you know, I think that anytime you talk to a bandit, you know, or at least the ones who have kind of given interviews, not just me, but also, you know, there are a couple, literally only a couple other, you know, Nigerians who have, have um, you know, done work here and interviewed some of these guys. And, um, you know, looking at their interviews or talking to, to these journalists, it's always the same thing, which is like, when you ask them, I mean, there's, there's some, um, you know, my friend Abdulaziz Abdulaziz of, of Daily Trust, which is the biggest newspaper in northern Nigeria, he's done some fantastic work uh, and, and on, you know, this banditry issue, and he's interviewed a couple of the bandits. And if you look at his articles, it's a similar thing where he'll ask, okay, but like, you're, you know, you're killing innocent people, you say, you say that, you know, you're fighting for justice, but you're killing innocent people. And it always devolves to what aboutism, they'll say, ah, you know, and then they try to use these, these logical tricks, they say, you know, why would I, as a Fulani man, kill, you know, like just any ordinary house a man? Like the herder needs the farmer because the farmland is necessary for the herder. Like I, you know, we need this symbiotic relationship. It's the house a man who's killing the Fulani. And did you know that the military killed 50 people in this village over here? Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they don't, I mean, have they which, which all may, which all may be true, but it's still a whataboutism. It's still just sort of a commentary precisely. on the state of affairs in the country. Yes. Yeah, precisely. And that's, I mean, that's one of the challenges, which is that these kind of kinetic solutions to banditry. Um, and, you know, I don't say this as some kind of peacenik. I'm simply saying this as kind of an analyst of, of the situation. Like, you know, the way that military force is employed or very often the way that the state kind of, um, you know, outsources security to vigilante groups like the Ansakai, it kind of ensures a degree of kind of indiscriminate violence, collateral damage, all that stuff. And so the bandits always have examples for their whataboutism 
Um, you know, do they actually believe that stuff? You know, I don't know. I mean, it, I can't go into the minds of these people per se. Um, but, you know, I think that their kind of intellectual arguments are quite weak. And I think that's one area where, you know, I kind of, I think I note throughout the essay, one of the things that's kind of confusing about the bandits is that they haven't spent a lot of time trying to actually develop any kind of political agenda. And that really sets them apart from, you know, the jihadists like Boko Haram or Islamic State West Africa province, abbreviated as ISWAP, who operate in the Northeast. Um, and just as means of a teaser, I'm going to have a, a long study out on that soon with some of my uh, colleagues. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, everyone keep, keep an eye out for that. Um, okay. But, you know, like the the jihadists, they they have a coherent ideology, political program, political economy. That doesn't mean that it's always, you know, implemented in a kind of coherent manner. You know, there are always exceptions. It's difficult as insurgents, you know, the, the commander doesn't always have control over his other units. It's even ideologically driven insurgents have to be very pragmatic, which is actually one thing that really kind of defines the nascent relationship between bandits and jihadists. So I'm not saying that they're like, you know, unblemished, ideologically pure, but you ask jihadists what they want. They're, you know, they're pretty clear. Um, I mean, people like me don't really get to ask them, right? If, if I went into the bush, I, that would not end well to, to interview Boko Haram. But they they have a pretty coherent agenda, which is we're going to replace like the Westphalian state system with this Islamic state. And we're going to do it this way. And this is how we're going to, you know, order our governance. And this is how the economy is going to work. And of course, you have models with, you know, the caliphate and air quotes over in Iraq and Syria. Whereas the bandits, they don't, you know, if you ask them like, okay, what are your political objectives? What, what do you want? They all say, oh, we just want it to be like the way things were. Um, and actually in that sense, again, they kind of tie into this notion of how Hobsbawm de- defined social bandits as I think he called them revolutionary traditionalists. Um, mm-hmm. And that was, you know, one of the, uh, you know, and that really does come through in all the interviews, you know, both the ones I've conducted, but also the other interviews I've seen with bandits where, you know, it's like, okay, what do you want? They're like, oh, we just want things to be simple like they used to be. You know, a herder could travel from one area to another without being harmed. The police and the military, they wouldn't, you know, harass people. There there wasn't these issues over farming and grazing land. And so that's where, you know, the fact and, that... And were, were things ever really that simple? I mean, of course, this is a, you know, it's with... I mean, they're, they're nostalgic, right? So they're looking at things with a bit of rose-tinted glasses. Um, certainly, farmer-herder conflict is not new. Um, you know, you have, uh, going back to, you know, the, the, the early independence era, even the colonial era, you have these kind of newspaper clippings of, you know, a local conflict over a watering hole between herders and farmers in the Northwest. Banditry itself is age-old. Even the, the treaty that Lord Lugard, the British administrator of Nigeria, Nigeria was originally two colonies um, before 1914. It was amalgamated, the South and the North. And one of the justifications that Lugard used in this treaty was he was talking about, you know, banditry and cattle wrestling in the Northwestern states, I mean, really across the North. And so, you know, we needed to consolidate to improve security or whatever. Um, So like, there have always been issues, but where, you know, and sometimes the bandits are nostalgic for like, you know, I mean, in one instance, you know, this one bandit, he's always talking about Sani Abach who was this brutal military dictator from 1993 to 98. So, you know, things were not, uh, you know, perfect back then. But on this question of like how, you know, 
just the degree of instability, the degree of violence, and I think particularly kind of the ethnic dimension. In that sense, you know, things did used to be a bit better. Um, you know, Hausa Fulani, like if you're, you know, if you're reading about Nigeria, it'll very often say, you know, the big three ethnic groups, you have, uh, groups, you have the Yoruba in the southwest, the Igbo in the southeast, and then the Hausa Fulani in the north. And, you know, the Hausa Fulani, they're not one ethnic group. It's they're, they're, they're distinct ethnic groups, but there's been so much assimilation over the years, really beginning in the 19th, early 19th century, when the Fulani came in and conquered a lot of the Hausa Emirates. Um, and so, you know, in many ways, people did used to identify more with that kind of joint ethnicity. Um, at least that's, that's the impression I get talking not just to bandits, but to everyone in the North. Um, and, you know, reading uh, books and articles and stuff from, from that time, um, which doesn't mean that people didn't know, oh, someone is Fulani, you know, or like someone's mother's Fulani, but just that it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as salient. It wasn't as important, those distinctions. And I think that mm -hmm. the kind of the increasing, you know, the scale of farmer herder conflict, whereas it used to be, you know, one farmer and one herder or a few farmers and a few herders had a conflict, a dispute. And they would often resolve it through these kind of traditional conflict resolution mechanisms. You know, the head of a Fulani, you know, pastoralist clan and the village chief would go and, you know, have a tete-a-tete. -tete and then they'd, you know, come to a resolution about, okay, the herder has to pay this much to the farmer whose crops he trampled on or whatever. Um, so, you know, there were disputes, but they tended to be much smaller scale. And they tended not to have kind of the primacy of ethnicity, you know, to feature that that question of he's Fulani, he's Hausa, they're my mm -hmm. enemy. Um, so in that sense, you know, the nostalgia is not totally um, misplaced, but, you know, they have no agenda for, for actually doing this, right? They don't say, sometimes the bandits will boast, oh, we're going to go to Aso Rock, you know, which is the big, where the presidential villa is in Abuja. But like, they're not, you know, if, if they had unified together by now, they probably could have taken Abuja, right? I mean, they, they would be so much more powerful if they were unified but they haven't. And so that kind of suggests that the political grievances in many instances are, you know, they're less of the driving factor than kind of the individual interests of, of kingpins. Um, right. And that they operate more like gangs or sort of, you know, individual mafia like groups uh, guarding each guarding their own territory. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. And oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was, I was just going to say, you know, there is the, the, the conflict is is constantly evolving. And so the one kind of caveat I have here is that, you know, it's very important to look at, you know, to, to, tr to try to keep a pace with developments. I mean, frankly, even just between, you know, late August when I went into the bush to interview these guys and now there's been, you know, essentially two months or three months of, um, excuse me, of like pretty, you know, intense restrictions uh, imposed by the state governors um, in the Northwest, you know, shutting off the cell networks, uh, banning sales of fuel in like, you know, jerry cans, which, you know, that's something that the bandits use because they'll send someone into town to buy fuel in a big can and then take it out in the bush, um, you know, closure of, of livestock markets, which is where the bandits sell a lot of the cattle they wrestle. Um, and so one of the interesting things is like with this, uh, with these kind of intense measures, you know, uh, imposed on the bandits, a lot of the bandit gangs or a number of them have started cooperating a bit because 
they kind of realize that that's what they need to do in order to circumvent these measures. And so a lot of the bandits now, they're talking in much more terms of like, we're unifying, we're going to topple the government, all that stuff. And on a tactical level, you do see a degree of unity, you know, a bit more unity between these gangs. The, the biggest instance, you know, these guys, uh, Turji and Halilu, who had kind of been rivals up in, in Shinkafi in the northwestern part of Zampara, they've recently started co- cooperating. So it's kind of one of those oh, things that you always got to. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's one of those things you got to keep an eye out on. Um, and actually, Dr. Rufai and I, the guy who you know uh, helped me uh, uh, through all my research in Zampara, we, we recently wrote a, a, a piece on this, looking at the impact of these anti-banditry measures and one of the challenges is that actually it's kind of pushing some of the gangs to cooperate, which isn't good. Um, but, you know, my. Mm, yeah. And what's mm. what's the government's response to that? Oh, well, I mean, the, the government's response is lacking nuance, um, I would say. And I think mm-hmm. um, one of the challenges in, in the Northwest has been that, you know, the left hand doesn't talk to the right hand. Um, the within federal, the government, you mean? Within the government. And yeah. there's there's tends to be a divide between the state governors and the federal government and sometimes even between governors. So, you know, these amnesties that uh, have, have occurred in the past for the bandits where bandits, you know, swear on a Quran that they're no longer going to do banditry and they, you know, hand in some AK-47s, there's a big ceremony. And then most of the time the bandits go back to, to fighting pretty shortly thereafter. Um, you know, these, these have, these amnesties have not been initiated by the federal government. The federal government's policy has always essentially, you know, been quite militarized, um, especially since the middle of the 2010s, which is, you know, these guys are criminals, terrorists, you know, kill them, arrest them. Um, but it's the it's the state governors who have kind of, you know, frankly, they're the ones who are more at risk and they're seeing every day what this conflict is doing. And so when the bandits get too powerful, they've offered these amnesties. Um, but very often there's an issue where, you know, a, a one state governor will um, announce an amnesty. So, for example, in like 2018, the uh, Zampara governor announced an amnesty at the same time that the military was launching a big, uh, like, you know, aerial bombardments and stuff against the bandits. And so the, the there's kind of that disconnect between state and federal level, you know, between the different state governments, right? Because, um, you know, some of the some of the governors take a much harder line on banditry. They say, we're not going to give amnesties. We're not going to negotiate ransoms. And so the problem with the bandits is they operate along the kind of internal borders of Nigeria. They operate on the seams between different states. Um, and so, you know, there's a policy in Zampara state, but, and, you know, that affects a bandit gang one way, but the gang also operates in neighboring Niger state. So it's, it's been mm-hmm. very difficult to get a coordinated response. Um, but I think especially, um, you know, with the kind of the current onslaught or the current, you know, measures imposed against the bandits, the, the the military is is and you know Buhari President Buhari and the federal government as a whole is kind of talking in much more bellicose terms about banditry than they have before and one of the big kind of uh, developments really just the past week I think it was um, was a federal high court in Abuja you know declared the bandits terrorists which in practice is very difficult right because. You know, the, it's not like they said these specific gangs are terrorists. They said, you know, the bandits are terrorists. Um, it's a similar issue we had when, you know, Trump wanted to declare Mexican cartels terrorist organizations. And it's like, yeah. okay, but like, how do you even define which is a cartel and which isn't? Um, right. Yeah. But that, 
you know, one of the reasons the military did that, I think, or sorry, that, um, you know, I, now I should correct myself. You know, it was a federal high court who that, that made that uh, prescription. But the, the prescription was one that the military, you know, particularly has been pushing for for a while, as well as a lot of politicians. And I think one of the reasons the military really wants that is because they, they don't want their hands tied, particularly by these clauses in um, the America's sale of certain um, uh, certain military aircraft to the Nigerian Air Force. So we sold right. these Super Tucanos to them. It was a big multi-year saga because, you know, eventually, originally the the sale was proposed, then it was postponed over concerns about the military's human rights uh, abuses and, you know, particularly the Air Force and, you know, indiscriminate bombing and stuff. And so there were clauses in the contract, uh, essentially, that said, you know, these Super Tucano aircraft were giving to the Nigerians, they should be used for counterterrorism purposes, which means, you know, fighting Boko Haram, Iswap in the Northeast. Um, and I, you know, the military was really trying to push for these bandits to be labeled terrorists so that they wouldn't have any constraints on what kind of responses they're, they're taking in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, the, the response has been very militarized, but as I kind of allude to in, in at the end of the essay and, and describe in more detail kind of, um, elsewhere is, is the military faces a lot of challenges just because it's very overstretched. Um, it hasn't had a very robust permanent presence in the Northwest. It kind of enters, then leaves or, you know, increases deployments, but then bring those troops back. So they don't always have great, you know, uh, intelligence gathering on the ground, identifying who's who. Um, and, you know, frankly, I just don't yeah. know if like a, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if like a decapit, a leadership decapitation strategy is going to work when you have a hundred plus gangs and each time you kill a leader, the gang just splinters into other gangs. Um, so to what to what extent would you say uh, there's corruption within, you know, I mean, within the government with regards to bandits? Are there any elements within the government who receive kickbacks from kingpins, perhaps? Or um, is there sort of a nod and a wink agreement with uh, this group versus that group? You know, what, to what extent might these things be going on in the background? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, the, the simple answer is, is yes, there's a lot of corruption in Nigeria broadly, also in the Northwest. Um, I mean, to, you know, to make it a, a bit personal for a bit, I honestly, I sometimes felt more, uh, concerned about my safety in Gusau, the federal capital or on the roads than I did when I was out in the bush with the bandits because there are just so mm. many people. You know, one of the things that becomes very clear when you're interviewing people in Zampara is, just how many, it's not just the bandits, right? There are so many people who are willing to settle disputes or enrich themselves or gain power through the use of, you know, through the use of force. Um, and it's very often kind of covert or whatever, but like, just to take one example, a source that I interviewed in Gusso, who was very good and interviewed him several times, he's an incredibly sketchy man. Um, he's a good source for, you know, this type of stuff because he has lots of information, information I was able to corroborate. But he's involved, he's kind of at the center of all these different feuds between individuals, you know, whether it's like politicians, bandits, different, different power brokers, I guess I should just say. Um, and, you know, shortly after I interviewed him one night, like within an hour, there was an assassination attempt on him just near where we were interviewing him. Like, wow. so it's, it's, the whole thing is pretty murky, frankly. Um, I, 
in terms of the, the corruption, you know, you hear a ton of allegations, a ton of accusations, not all of them, you know, most of them have not been proven or, or seriously substantiated. But for, you know, there have been instances, um, for example, the, the, the Zamfara governor recently suspended two emirs and the emirs, they're, you know, they're traditional rulers. So right in the pre-colonial era, they were the, uh, you know, they were the authorities in the region. Um, and, you know, they might, they, they would be kind of suzerains of the Sultan, but they were the local authorities. And then in the colonial era, they were co-opted by the British, uh, through the system of indirect rule. And in the, the post-independence era, essentially, these emirs don't have really any kind of legal power. Um, but they have, they hold a lot of informal influence and some of them are pretty wealthy. Um, and so one emir, for example, has been implicated in the, uh, the killing of a prominent Fulani man way back in 2012, um, over essentially a, a kind of a personal dispute. And, you know, he wanted some cows from this influential herder. And so he co-opted some of these vigilantes into, uh, you know, staging a hit on this, uh, on this influential herder in the middle of the market one day. And actually that incident was very, that was like a real catalyst in some ways. That was a bit of an inflection point in this conflict. Because in response, you know, because this herder was so influential among Fulani across, you know, northern Nigeria and Cameroon, you had uh, a number of local herders and his relatives essentially engaged in these disproportionate, you know, retaliatory, brutal attacks on several villages where the, you know, the vigilantes who killed this herder, um, they attacked the villages where those vigilantes were from and killed like over 100 people almost. Um, And so... Mm. You know, corruption in the security sector, corruption among local politicians, corruption amid uh, or, um, you know, among uh, traditional rulers is it's definitely been a, a driver of conflict and, and exacerbating grievances. Um, and, you know, the bandits now, I mean, they're power brokers. And so very often the local officials have to negotiate with the bandits just to open up the market, you know. So there's a lot of contact, in fact, between, you know, the authorities and bandits. They just try to keep it, uh, they try to keep it quiet. And then it leads to all these problems because, you know, it can, it it creates the conditions for murky dealings, if you will. Right. And it doesn't sound like the problem is going to go away or even dissipate anytime soon. It sounds like, you know, lawlessness um, corruption, conflict over resources, as, as it may become more and more intertwined with a multi-ethnic conflict, that's just going to continue and continue to grow, especially with, uh, perhaps climate change and whatever other issues the country is dealing with. And of course, ordinary Nigerians are the true victims. Yeah. Yeah. So what would yeah, you say? Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, so what, what is, what is your prognosis of this? Is it just going to keep mm-hmm. getting worse and worse? Yeah. I mean, you know, my prognosis is very bleak. Um, I think especially this coming year, 2022, I think is going to be rough, not just in the Northwest, but kind of nationwide because, you know, the, the country's gearing up for elections in early 2023. So next year is going to be election year. Uh, you know, it's, it's a de facto election year. And, you know, unfortunately, just, I mean, this is the case everywhere, right? Like insecurity, these things, it's, it's always political. There's always a political angle. Politicians, you know, uh, factor in political considerations and how they respond to insecurity. 
Um, you know, so this is not a uniquely Nigerian thing by any measure, but it's a very serious problem in Nigeria. And I think one of the additional kind of challenges that Nigeria has is when you have so many, you know, young men running around with guns in the country, um, you know, which is not just the situation in the Northwest, it's nationwide, but it becomes very tempting for politicians to even kind of either look the other way or kind of, uh, you know, sometimes even co-opt some of these, you know, non-state armed groups for their own political purposes. So you have lots of instances in recent elections where, you know, hooligans that are often called in local media will go out and harass people at the ballots, or steal ballot box or burn down, you know, um, you know, burn down a, a voting booth or whatever. Um, and then also it's just there are much more incentives to kind of politicize and, and, and very often ethnicize the insecurity by saying, this is the problem of, you know, ex politician or ex ethnic group. We need to get them out of here. You know, this has been a real issue in, in the middle belt states and the north central states where it's, there's much more of a religious dimension because the population is more mixed, Muslim, Christian. Um, so I think in 2022, things will probably get worse in some ways just because the political and the electoral considerations are going to be so much stronger for, um, you know, for the authorities, uh, both at the local level, the state level, the federal level, um, you know, I mean, that doesn't have to necessarily be a bad thing. I mean, in the case of Boko Haram, the, the previous president, good luck, Jonathan, you know, way back in the mid 2010s, he was kind of holding off on fighting Boko Haram in part for political reasons and then launched a big offensive against them right before the, uh, the elections, which, you know, wasn't enough to gain him reelection, but it did help push back, you know, Boko Haram and, and improve the situation a bit. Um, you know, so it's, it, that could work to the benefit of security, but my inclination is that it probably won't because there are so many other instances where politicians just kind of cynically used conflict and insecurity and social divisions in an election year as, you know, a political cudgel one way or another. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And what about the younger generation? I mean, would you say there's more awareness of this among young younger Nigerians and sort of a renewed resolve to address these issues? Or is there more sort of, you know, a state of apathy? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. I think I think here there's a really big kind of, you know, class divide, regional divide, so social divide, really, um, or I, I guess, you know, it just it, that's to say, you know, urban, younger, relatively educated, even even not particularly well educated Nigerians, but just, you know, I think those who kind of have the resources to mobilize um, really are, you know, making, you know, a big point about this. And you see it all the time in social media. But then also, of course, you had these big, you know, these massive protests um, across the country, but particularly in Lagos and, and some other southern states in 2020 against police brutality. That were, you know, they were very inspiring, um, and, and do show, you know, that the, the younger generation, there is a significant portion of them who are very, uh, attuned to these challenges and, and trying to look for solutions. And they're tired of the tribalism of, of, you know, both politics and also, you know, among different regions, religions, ethnicities. Um, but I, you know, the IDPs I talk to or the young boys in the bush with the Haji Shingi, like they're, just don't have that, you know, power. They don't have that luxury to kind of, you know, they're, they're trying to scrape by, they're trying to survive. Um, their world is totally different. Right. And so mm -hmm. I think that's, 
it's all well and good to talk about the power of the youth. And, you know, yes, I mean, that can be a huge advantage. Uh, you know, it could be a huge advantage for Nigeria and all this stuff. And I mean, I live in Lagos, right? That's I, I see kind of the dynamism and the potential that you have in all the, you know, whether it's culture or technology, um, you know, you have all this potential there among younger Nigerians. But, you know, the world that I see in, in rural Katsina or Zamfara or Kaduna is it's just it's it's a world away from, you know, from Lagos and from the, the, the success stories that I think for good reason we should be trying to focus on, you know, but it's just I, I, I have a very hard time imagining that someone in the Northwest who's kind of grown up in this world of violence and poverty and who doesn't have, you know, has all these structural forces stacked against them. I have a very hard time believing that they can try to do anything other than to kind of survive within the dynamics that currently exist. Um, but I hope I'm wrong. You know, mm-hmm. I hope I'm wrong. James Barnett, writer and researcher based in Nigeria. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Rasha. It's been a real pleasure. I'm Rasha Elas, and you've been listening to the New Lines podcast. Don't forget to join us next time to hear more from our writers and contributors.